This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Danny Houston, and on today's podcast, we'll be diving into the latest market moves, including how McDonald's has been hit by the Middle East conflict and how oil price falls have had a knock on effect for BP, Shell, and Total Energy's profits. Joining me today is Laura Souter. Hi, Danny. We've also got a roundup of the updates that we had from some of the Magnificent Seven last week, including Apple, Amazon and Meta. And sticking with that theme, we've got an interview this week with a seasoned US investor talking all about how investors in the States have shifted away from a dividend focus, but why that might be about to change. And I'll be bringing you some news on why you might need more in your retirement pot than you initially thought. But as ever, let's dive headfirst into markets first, Danny. So give us an update on the oil giants first. Yeah, I mean, big oil has been very much back in focus over the last couple of weeks. We've had updates from BP, Shell, Total Energies, ExxonMobil and Chevrolet, those big five Western oil giants. And in total, between them, they racked up almost a billion pounds in profit, and that is despite the slump in energy prices. It is a huge amount of money, and as you might have expected, of course, it sort of started the drum beats again because, of course, a lot of people have been really impacted by the cost of living crisis. Energy, a big part of that. Um, now, the fall in energy prices has had a knock-on to the likes of BP, which did see um, profits of 11 billion down, which is half of what it made in 2022. But don't feel all bad for BP because it's still the second highest in a decade. Now, this remarkable earnings season also came with bumper returns to shareholders. I think in many cases, these big companies are really trying to win over shareholders, keep hold of them. So they delivered over £88 billion worth of dividends and buybacks in 2023. And notably, that was slightly higher than the £87 billion that they doled out to investors during that record year of 2022. And it does seem like these oil giants are on something of a charm offensive because for many people, investing in fossil fuels is a hard line that they just won't cross when it comes to their investing landscape. But on the flip side, you've got pressure from other people wanting these energy companies to continue to invest in fossil fuels because at the moment, that is definitely where the money is. And they've got a really difficult line to walk because demand for fossil fuels, it's not just going to switch off at the click of a solar-powered switch. And getting the transition right, it's not going to be easy. So they're having to walk the line between delivering returns for shareholders, still providing the fossil fuels that the globe needs, the world needs, but also getting the transition right, putting those building blocks in place and putting in enough money but not too much money. And they've got a real PR issue as well, I think, to contend with at the moment because this transition to cleaner, greener fuels 
in some cases is coming at a cost. And we've had an update as well from um, the world's largest offshore wind developer, Orsted, which has announced hundreds of job cuts and has cut its renewable targets at the same time because of rising costs. We've also had an announcement from Labour today really sort of scaling back that £28 billion green investment pledge. So I think we're on a real tipping point here at the moment. And it's something that investors do need to keep a close eye on. And from one household name in terms of those oil companies to another, we mentioned at the top that McDonald's has seen its business impacted by that conflict in the Middle East. So tell us more about how that's playing out. Yes, it reported its first quarterly sales miss in nearly four years. Uh, Weak sales growth in the international business division partly due to the conflict in the Middle East. Now, it, it's not alone. A number of Western brands um, have been impacted. I'm thinking particularly Starbucks, Coca-Cola. Um, there have been protests and boycott campaigns about the perceived pro-Israeli stance in the Israel-Hamas conflict. And this wasn't helped by the fact, obviously, a, a lot of um, the business in the Middle East is run by franchisees. And a franchisee in Israel was actually giving out free meals to Israeli soldiers, which clearly didn't go down well um, with those pro-Palestinian. And there were a lot of then businesses in other parts of the world, in Gaza, who were then having to try and really sort of deal with that. So announcing donations to relief efforts in, in Gaza and Um, The McDonald's CEO, Chris Kepzinski, has warned that misinformation in the Middle East and elsewhere is hurting sales and that is likely to continue. So that is on the one hand. On the other hand, you also have a situation where sales in China, again, are being impacted. We just haven't seen China recovering in the same way. And US sales They were up 4.3% in the quarter, but that was below estimates. And what McDonald's has really seen is that a lot of customers in the United States and in Europe, they're trading down. So they are looking for the value items to order. And McDonald's has been very good at that, at really sort of grabbing hold of its value mantle and delivering the kind of stuff on their menus that will appeal to people looking for cheaper items. But then, of course, you know, going forward, that is an issue. And it's managed to boost profits by 7% because it has charged customers more for things like Big Macs, Nuggets and Fries. But it can only go so far. So I think there'll be a lot of attention paid to whether or not its growth can continue and what happens in places like the Middle East and China going forward. And we thought it would be interesting to touch on Tesla this week. Now, some company that we cover very regularly on the podcast, whether it's for what's happening at the company or for what Elon Musk has said that week. But it does appear (laughs) to have become financial journalists' favourite company to use as a bit of a comparison as to how well other companies are doing. Almost a bit like its misfortune is being highlighted at every opportunity. So, Danny, what's going on there? Yeah, it has become the financial journalist's favourite whipping boy. I mean, there is cause because Tesla shares are down 
down 24% since the start of the year. We've got obviously slowing sales growth. You know, they've taken a red pen to the sticker price of Tesla's um, concern about how Elon Musk is running the company. Um, motorist perceptions impacting their decisions to buy a Tesla. We've had lots of people saying, look, I don't want to drive my Tesla anymore because of Elon Musk and the fact that he is associated with it. However, it does seem like everybody is using Tesla to really compare its fortunes to other companies' fortunes. And it was a really interesting um, tweet X on the platform formerly known as Twitter from the stock twits. And they remarked that the chip maker NVIDIA, AI Darling, had added Tesla's entire market cap to its valuation in just three months. And accurate, pretty much, it was a Tesla-shaped hull. I mean, that is just incredible. Just demonstrates, Laura, the sort of ongoing love that investors have for everything generative AI, because it really is changing the landscape. And funnily enough, at the start of the show, I was talking about those oil giants. Well, they're having to battle with technology stocks to win over investors' affections and, you know, technology stocks just going from strength to strength. But I also saw on the same day that I saw that bit from StockTwits, Forbes magazine pointing to Tesla and saying that the success of the drug maker Eli Lilly had effectively seen that company overtake Tesla in terms of market cap. The valuation has shot above and that is down to its uh, weight loss drug in particular. Huge success there. But it is just interesting that we really flip-flopped between Tesla being this, you know, golden company that that couldn't do anything wrong and Musk being sort of the golden boy of, of the investing landscape to almost being a poison pill. It's interesting, isn't it, how you see that the kind of popularity of companies rise and you then have to be very cautious of the fall. You get all the accolades on the way out, but you get far more of the criticism on the way down when you've become that stock market darling, don't you? But let's stick with the Magnificent Seven for now, because we had a host of updates from those companies last week. So we had Apple, Amazon and Meta all updated. So do you want to just give us a quick run through of, of what the outlook looked like for those firms? Yeah, I mean, what you just said about Elon Musk and Tesla and a company, you know, getting the accolades on the way up and then getting a real kicking when it was having a bad time, that could equally be leveled at Meta. You know, Mark Zuckerberg's business has had real issues over the years, particularly with the big focus on the metaverse that investors just didn't get. Well, with this earnings update, this is a company 25 years after it burst onto our scenes, which has really come of age. You know, it has delivered now, or it will deliver, um, its first dividend, which I think is a real sort of uh, point for a company, a company that has been all about growth to, to really come of age and finally start returning for its shareholders in a very different way. And I know that the interview we'll hear later is going to talk about this sort of shift in focus to dividends from just growth. And Meta really stole the show. Uh, it delivered a 25% jump in revenue to $40.1 billion for the December quarter. Now, this is down to robust advertising, device sales, harnessing AI, 
once again to really make sure that our experience when we use things like Facebook means that we are seeing the kind of adverts that we want to see that appeal to us. So if we sort of hover over something, at the moment, my timeline is completely populated by kitchens, gorgeous images of kitchens, <laughs> because I spotted one that I quite liked. I'm yeah. not in the market for a kitchen, but my goodness, every time I go on, I see these lovely kitchens and I'm now sort of thinking, hmm, maybe I do need my kitchen redoing. So it, it is clever. And a similar thing also appealed to Amazon. I mean, did you use Amazon a lot for your Christmas present buying, Laura? I use Amazon far too much. There's a brown package arriving every day from, from that company, despite me trying to shake the habit. And despite the fact that we have a cost of living crisis here in the UK, it has been less pronounced in the United States and it delivered a really strong quarter, beat expectations. You know, you're talking about a 14% surge in net sales and, you know, still really strong growth for its Amazon Web Services, although that is sort of... Um, waiting a little bit. So Microsoft is really sort of nipping on its heels, but it it's also using advertising. And I've sort of had to think about this. And of course, I quite often will go on Amazon to search for something, to search for a kind of product. So that's my first point of call for, you know, some bin bags or, you know, a new laptop or, or whatever. And I use its search engine to help me make my product determination. And it announced it was going to launch Rufus, a cutting edge generative AI powered shopping assistant. Um, this kind of sounds a bit creepy. I'm not sure what it's going to look like, whether we're actually going to get some kind of avatar or whether it's just going to be behind the scenes. You know, mm -hmm. if it's sort of a cartoon of a dog, maybe mm -hmm. I'd go with that. But, you know, some kind of Ananova type um AI generated image might put me off, but it also saw its share price up. The one sort of low point, if you will, which is a real surprise considering, you know, the trajectory of Apple over the last few years, but it has seen sales growth slow over the last year. There's been a lot of concern about um, its iPhone sales, obviously, um, pandemic time, a lot of people invested in tech and then post that with the cost of living crisis, a lot of people were putting off buying new handsets or all of that kind of stuff. And it it did beat expectations. So actually it saw revenue up for the first time in four consecutive quarters, up 2%, but it just wasn't enough. Um, shareholders really concerned about the performance in China and the impacts that competitors in China will continue to have on sales there. And also the fact that although we, it's hinted, Tim Cook has hinted that they're working on generative AI, we haven't had any big announcements. So it was really interesting timing that off the back of those results, he did come out and say, look, we will be doing a big unveil later this year. So it was a sort of tease to try and keep investors on board, but Apple's got its work to do. And as Danny said, stay tuned for more on that later because our interview this week is touching on some of those points and also those companies. 
But next up, we wanted to dive into the world of pensions because a new report out this week found, and frankly, it was terrifying reading, but the amount we're going to need to retire on has increased dramatically. Now, I suppose it shouldn't be a surprise because the impact of the cost of living crisis, high inflation, means that the price of everything has gone up. We all know that. But it's had a knock-on effect to how much we're going to need in our pension pot, Laura. It has. And so just the backdrop for this, this is something um, from the PLSA uh, organisation. And it essentially sets out how much you'd need each year to retire on in different scenarios. So it adds up all of the costs that you might have in either a minimum retirement, a moderate retirement and a comfortable retirement. So it's looking at things like How much do you want to go on holiday each year? How many days out do you want to have? Do you want to eat out each week? And what kind of place do you want to eat out at? How much are you going to spend on birthday presents, for example, DIY? Are you going to have a car? And then how nice is that car going to be? And so it puts together all of these things and comes up with a figure of how much you would need to live on to maintain that lifestyle. Um, And so if we look at the kind of minimum lifestyle, it's talking about, you know, £50 per person a week on groceries. It's talking about having no car, but there's some allowance for you to spend some money on train tickets or on taxis um, and that you get one holiday a year for a week, but it's in the UK. And then you go, there's a moderate, which is kind of in between, and then comfortable is the most, um, I guess, most luxurious option. And um, for comparison there instead of that 50 pound per person a week for groceries it that's bumped up to 70 pound a week but you also get money to go out and for takeaways and instead of having that one uk holiday a year you get two weeks in um europe and then three long weekend breaks in the uk so that gives you an example of kind of how these different lifestyles stack up on what the plsa does it adds up how much all of that's going to cost and then gives you a figure and it's really useful because that gives us a kind of figure to aim towards in retirement but while it calculates these each year what it's discovered is that actually because of the cost of living going up like you mentioned danny these the amount that you'd need to live on in retirement has shot up dramatically so for example a single person wanting a comfortable standard of living so the kind of best option of those um would now need to spend just over £43,000 a year to maintain that lifestyle. And that is up from just over £37,000 a year when they calculated it last year. For that minimum retirement level, um, for a single person, it's almost £14,500 a year, but that's a 12% increase on what we were seeing previously. So it's really... um, it's really helpful to give you that guide to what you might need in retirement and the kind of lifestyle you envisage yourself leading, but also really eye-opening, just encapsulating how much we've seen price increases go up and how much that's had an impact on on retired people because they may have set out with a certain income in mind and they may have factored in, you know, that, that might need to increase with inflation a bit each year. But these increases are obviously very dramatic and and lots of people might not have priced those in so all that's really interesting but but let's talk cold hard cash what do people need in their pension pots 
Yeah, exactly. Because it's very useful to have those figures of what you need each year. And if you're right on the cusp of retirement, that's very handy and easy to work out if you've got enough. But if you're maybe 10, 20 or even 30 years away from retirement, you want kind of a gauge of, of how much you'd need to have in your pension pot um, to be able to afford those those figures. And so luckily, uh, my colleague Tom Selby has done all of the number crunching. Um, and so just the assumptions first. So he's assumed that you get investment returns of 4% a year after any charges, also that your income rises by 2% a year. So making sure that it's keeping up with, you know, average inflation. Um, and also he's factored in that your pot of money needs to last for 25 years in retirement. And so I'll start with the good news, shall I? Because we all need a bit of good Please news. Please do. Um, to achieve that minimum living standard, um, as a couple, you actually don't need any retirement pot. So that's because um, if you're eligible for the full state pension, that as a couple, because you're pooling your money and so that helps with costs, um, that would provide sufficient income for that minimum level um so that's good news if you're single you would need a pension pot of seventy thousand pounds for that minimum living standard and that's because you know as we've highlighted before um there is a higher cost of being single you can't split the cost with someone and so you incur higher costs so um but seventy thousand pounds pension pot at retirement plus your kind of state pension that feels you know achievable for lots of people and that gives you that minimum standard now the caveat here is that i think lots of people when they think about retirement think about more than just that minimum standard of living and so let's go all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum so that comfortable living standard that you need that i talked about some of the criteria of before so as a single person you would need a pension pot of eight hundred thousand pounds just shy of that £790,000, for example. Um, and as a couple, your combined fund would need to be £890,000. So dramatic difference, but also that factors in a very big difference in lifestyle and in what you're going to be spending your time doing each day. Um, all in, I feel like it's just very helpful to have those figures because if you're, you know, at my stage of life where you're kind of, what am I now, 25 years maybe away from retirement, who knows, maybe 20 if I stuff my pension <laughs> pot and can retire early. But um, you just put that money into your pot each month and, and you're not necessarily aware of whether you're on track. And because people don't talk about their pensions that much, you don't have a gauge of where you are against your peers or against people your same age. So I think this is a really healthy way of measuring, am I on track and am I likely to achieve those numbers um, before I hit retirement age? And I think it's just quite useful to kind of plan out in the cold, hard figures. So you figure out you're not on track. What do you do? Yeah, and so I think that would be the case for, for some people. So what I would say is obviously those pension pot sizes are what you need when you come to retire. And someone who's a long way away from retirement might be thinking, oh my goodness, I've got nowhere near that amount of money. But what I would say is use a pension calculator online or a compound interest calculator, for example, and just plug in the details of what your pension pot is now, your kind of expected return over that period. So we usually use about 4% a year. Um, and you can also put in what you think your contributions are going to be. So how much you're paying into your pension each month. 
um, and then set the amount of time you've got to retirement and it will work out what your pension pot is going to be at retirement. And firstly, I think you might be quite surprised by how much it will grow, particularly if you've got, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, you've got a decent period until you retire. You might be closer to some of those figures than you would initially assume. But also it gives you a gauge of, you know, whether you're on track. And and if you're not on track, then I think it's about thinking about can I pay more into my pension? Am I maximizing what the the company is giving me? So if you're in an employed job and you're not maximizing your company's pension matching, then you should really look at that because that's effectively free money that, that you're giving up if you're if you're not increasing your pension contributions. Albeit I acknowledge at the moment that everyone's got rising costs and so finding that bit of extra money to put in your pension might be quite tricky. But it's definitely worth um, thinking about whether that's possible. If you're not employed or you're self-employed and you're not paying into a pension at the moment, and that's one of those things that's kind of been in the back of your mind and you think I need to sort that out, this might be quite a useful wake-up call in terms of, okay, I need to start putting some money away um, either in a SIP, a self-invested personal pension, or maybe a lifetime ISA, if that is right for you, um, and thinking about, okay, even if I'm just putting a small amount away, that's going to help and grow over time, and that's better than putting nothing away, and over time I can I can increase it. So I think your first port of call is, you know, addressing, am I on track, am I not on track, and not kind of burying your head in the sand. And also don't be overwhelmed by the huge numbers that we're talking about here, um, there'll be people that want a more kind of moderate retirement and then the figures are lower for them. But equally, lots of us have a long time until retirement and a lot of time when that money could grow. We also had some figures out this week, which I found really interesting on the gender pensions gap. I mean, we've mm-hmm. talked loads about this before, Laura, on our other podcast, Money Matters. Just talk us through what those stats said. Yeah, so this was a separate report that was out from the Pensions Policy Institute, and it looked at that gender pensions gap, which, like you say, is something that we've looked looked at with um, Money Matters research before. Um, but there was some quite, you know, kind of damning figures. Women's pensions assets are less than two thirds of men's by their late fifties, um, and I think the figure that stood out to all of us is to bridge that gender pensions gap, women would need to contribute for an additional 19 years at a 6% higher rate than men just to get an equal pension pot. Now, I think there's some kind of practical things in here that we can also delve into. We know that women on average over their lifetime are paid less than men. And so that is going to translate into lower pension savings. And that's sometimes, you know, kind of lifestyle choices in terms of working part-time, taking time out to care for children or for elderly relatives, um, or, you know, having lower paid jobs, for example, is partly just, you know, the gender pay gap as well. So there's lots of things that go into this mixture. It's also partly that that our own research has shown women just engage less with their pensions as well. They're less likely to um, increase their contributions above the minimum when compared to men, they're less likely to be, you know, actively engaged with how it's invested. So there's lots of different things that kind of go into this melting pot that create these ultimate figures. But again, I think it's just another useful reminder that 
if you're a woman out there who is working part-time or has had career breaks or gaps in their career, not to forget about your pension. Um, and if you do want to check out more help and support targeted specifically at women, then take a look at AJ Bell Money Matters. Um, the website ajbellmoneymatters.co.uk has loads of articles, a podcast like we mentioned, and you can also sign up to the newsletter to get all of that latest stuff directly into your inbox. Thank you, Laura. Next up, we've got our interview this week, which is with Daniel Perris, who has over two decades of experience as a dividend-focused portfolio manager in the United States. He's the author of several books on investing, and his latest book, The Ownership Dividend, is out on Valentine's Day. A great present for the investor in your life. I think maybe <laughs> flowers would also work. You know, double whammy would you be good. You don't know... You don't know the way to my heart, Danny. An investing book is definitely it. <laughs> it's on its way, Laura. Now, he thinks we're on the verge of a major shift in US markets as dividend-focused investing has been waning in popularity for years. And he thinks it's poised to come back in fashion. Just to note that this interview was recorded before Meta announced its first dividend last week, as we covered earlier. So I think a good place to start is part of the premise of in your new book is around the fact that the US has shifted away from dividend focused investing over the years. I think maybe if you could just start with that premise of why you think that is the case and what has been the focus of investors in the US. Uh, thank you. It's a, it's a great question. And from a UK perspective, it it makes the US market seem even a, a little bit odder because uh, most UK companies and UK investors still kept to over the last several decades, kept to the, the, what I refer to as the cash nexus of investing, whether it's in stocks or real estates or business, that there would be some expectation of an actual cash relationship. And yet the United States very dramatically moved away from that. And the book is really based around explaining why that happened and why I think that force has come to an end. But the, the number one reason and it's, it's pretty straightforward if you think about it, is the 40-year uh, decline in interest rates. I refer to them in the book and draw a distinction between interest rates and risk rates. Risk rates are what you feel in the pit of your stomach. Risk rates are what you feel at 2 a.m. after you've, you've made an investment and are second-guessing yourself. Those are risk rates. But interest rates and risk rates, interest rates set by the government and by the market, uh, have been really moving down uh, from 1980 or so, 1981, uh, to uh, a bottom in 2020. And that really changed the nature of, I think, investing in the United States for a generation, almost for two generations, because the as interest rates came down, the cash expectation that was, in theory, according to the academics, and there are a couple chapters on the academics, and they play a kind of a big role in setting this all up. But they use in their whiteboards, or at the time, blackboards and chalkboards in the 1950s and 60s, they use interest rates set by the, the Federal Reserve Board or the 10-year, uh, the interest rate on uh, 10-year U.S. government securities, what you would refer to as, uh, as gilts in the U.K., they set that as the basis for their calculation of risk. So interest rates and risk rates kind of move in parallel. They're not the same. There are many other factors affecting interest rates, but they came down for decades. And what that did is it set a lower and lower and lower floor for 
expectations of cash returns from businesses. And there were other factors which we'll get to, but interest rates were the most important. As a consequence, investors over time came to demand less cash and were more focused on the share prices. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not illegal, not unethical, not immoral. It's common around the world. But the cash nexus between particularly minority owner, meaning a, comp a person who doesn't own all of the business, and, and most stock market investors are minority owners by definition. They own 100 shares, 1,000 shares, 10,000 shares, but they don't own uh, a controlling packet of a publicly traded company. Um, the cash nexus, particularly relevant for minority shareholders, was broken over uh, this, this multi-decade period, uh, and instead it became all about buy low, sell high, repeat frequently. Now, in the UK, in the US, everywhere, there's always been an element, and there always will be an element of buy low, sell high, repeat frequently. Uh, what I refer to as speculation, the dictionary definition of, of speculation. But uh, for most investors, in most periods of time, in the modern stock markets, meaning the last couple centuries, Amsterdam, London, the United States, other markets, there's been a cash cash relationship. And that really disappeared starting in the 1990s and became almost invisible the last two decades. And I think the, the reasons behind that are, are playing themselves out now and, and uh, we are primed for a return of the cash nexus. And so what do you think is going to be the catalyst for that? Is it purely reliant on that, you know, drop in interest rates or is it something else? In, sorry, in the ending of the, those low interest rates? Yeah, there are a couple of factors. So the other uh, contributing causes were the rise of the stock buyback program, which is a more or less uniquely American phenomenon. Your your audience is probably familiar with it because it's, it's deemed to be a a good thing for share prices. It's when companies speculate in their own share. I'm sorry, return cash to shareholders. That's the terminology <laughs> they use. In fact, they're just speculating in their in their uh, own shares. Very divisive uh, in the United States. Um, but uh, Wall Street uh, loves buybacks because it makes a lot of money for Wall Street. It doesn't really help investors, uh, certainly cash investors. So you had the decline in dividends and the rise in buybacks. Uh, you also had the rise of Silicon Valley and NASDAQ, uh, bravo, congratulations, really world-changing stuff. Um, but if you fast forward 40 years to the present time, uh, and if you consider that buybacks became more legal, they were complicated up until 1982. They became less complicated due to an, uh, a rule from the regulator in 1982. So if interest rates stop going down in 2020, buybacks become dominant from 1982 to, to the last few years. And you had the NASDAQ phenomenon. What's, what's changed? Why is some of this over at this point? Well, interest rates have stopped going down. One, buybacks are so dominant, it's not clear that they can go become even more dominant. That is, and, and people are calling into question whether buybacks are a good use of corporate capital in the current environment. And third, NASDAQ's been so successful, you got to ask, where's the cash? Where are the dividends? If these companies are so so tremendously successful, the very large tech companies that we all know and love and hate all at the same time, uh, where are their dividends? They, they just don't pay the dividends. And that's, I, I think, becoming increasingly uh, untenable. The other reason I think it's changing is, is political. And I have a, a chapter, uh, which is probably the most controversial chapter in the book on, on political economy, but the world has changed dramatically in the last uh, three, four years. The environment 
that began this period, this paradigm shift away from dividends in the U.S., really starts in 1979, 1980. The intellectual roots are a little bit earlier. But in 1979, Margaret Thatcher is elected prime minister in, in England. Ronald Reagan follows in 1980. Deng Xiaoping in 1979. Interest rates peak in 1981 in the United States. Share buybacks legalized, as it were, made more practical in 1982. So all this paradigm shift gets a lot of a running start in the early 1980s. Now, consider what's happened in the last four or five years. 2016, you begin to see cracks in the, the paradigm of what I refer to as the global march of capital, the unfettered access to capital, deregulation, declining interest rates, uh, outsourcing, globalization of trade, all the characteristics of the last 40 years. You begin to see the cracks of that in uh, 2016, both in your country uh, and in ours. So Brexit uh, is a sign of, of increasing uh, disaffection with that model. The rise of Donald Trump in 2016, uh, a sign of disaffection with that model uh, uh, in this country. 2020, it, it just, it, it all blows up. You have the supply chains failing as a result of COVID and uh, outsourcing everything to China no longer seems like a particularly good idea. You have the attempted coup led by Donald Trump uh, in January of 2021. You have Russia invading Ukraine uh, in February of 2022, which shatters the European ideal and the, the notion that we've solved all of these political issues. So in 2024, we have a very, very contentious election in the United States. There's division throughout Europe. There's still an ongoing war. Uh, interest rates have stopped going down, et cetera. And I think that the political economy, we've had two modes of political economy, one post-war mode up to 1980. Then we have this mode of political economy from 19. 80 to 2020, we'll call that the period of uh, global neoliberalism, seems to have come to an end. We're heading into a new period of political economy. We'll see. It's a little early to tell uh, how that's going to work out in terms of rates, in terms of corporate structure, in terms of markets, in terms of regulation, in terms of supply chain, most importantly, in terms of politics. But we're clearly heading into a different period. And I, I think that investors who have, whether in the UK or in the United States, who have come up the last 40 years and assume that this is how things are going to be, uh, a particular a business model or uh, a particular investment approach, uh, certainly owe it to themselves to reconsider how much the paradigm is changing right before our eyes and that they should uh, double check their whatever their investment approach is or their holdings to make sure that they are uh, able to withstand a change of paradigm. It's a little bit tricky. It's a lot tricky because we don't know exactly how this is going to play out. But I do think the uh, market characteristics and many of the corporate characteristics and the investor characteristics the last couple decades need to be double checked going into this new paradigm. And if we pick up on a few bits in there, I think the first one is that kind of um, pressure, you said, or the, the assumption that it can't be continued, that a lot of those NASDAQ stocks, a lot of those tech giants just can't continue not paying a dividend. Now, presumably that pressure is predominantly coming from the market, from investors, from big investors. But do you think that that is enough to push them to start paying dividends rather than um, sitting on cash piles, reinvesting, doing buybacks, all of the other things they could do with that money? That's that's a great question. And, and you know, if, if I'm wrong, we'll know uh, in, in a couple of years because Google won't pay a dividend uh, or or Amazon won't pay a dividend uh, or, uh, you know, Facebook. Um, and uh, I just think they're going to face increasing pressure. 
if you are a minority shareholder in any of those companies, right now you just have buy low, sell high, repeat frequently. And that's worked for decades. It's worked for the entire life of those companies. But nobody buys farmland that way. Nobody buys an investment that way. Nobody buys a private investment that way. No one buys rental real estate that way. Nobody works for any other business that way. You get paid cash. It's just the nature of the world. Imagine an environment in which you are only paid with pieces of paper that have uh, only value in the stock market. In order to pay your rent and buy groceries, you have to go into the stock market and sell your shares each week to, to bring home the cash necessary to pay the rent or, or, or pay the groceries. That's what owning a non-dividend paying, a successful non-dividend paying stock is like. You, you, you get nothing, no cash distributions from a very successful business, but they give you a little piece of paper. And the only way you can manifest the success of your investment is by selling it. What a funny thing. What a strange notion. Instead of a ongoing cash distribution from any enterprise. Again, real estate is, is the best analog to this. Private business is the best analog. But imagine if you're a successful stock market investor in a company that pays no dividends, the only way you can actually achieve your success. Doesn't matter how high the share price goes. You can't fund consumption with a high share price. That green number means nothing. You cannot eat it. You cannot pay the rent. You cannot take a vacation on it. You have to sell shares in order to fund consumption. Whereas every other normal business, including stock markets, gets a successful businesses send you a check if they're successful. If they're not successful, they don't send you a check, whether it's rental real estate or stock. And if they can't send a check, they can't send a check. That's just in the nature, you know, some businesses work out, some don't. I just think it is so historically anomalous to have large successful businesses that make no profit distributions to company owners, that that is unsustainable. It appears to have been sustainable for the last 40 years because declining interest rates, the rise of buybacks, a very benign uh, regulatory environment, the march of capital, et cetera, a very benign political environment. Uh, but all, all of that's now come to an end. And I think more and more investors, you've said large institutional investors, but I also think retail investors will eventually come to the conclusion Listen, if that company's so good, why can't they pay a dividend? And uh, if they can, they can. If they can't, they can't. In that regard, I am quoting myself. I apologize because we're currently very, very sensitive to quoting people. So I'm going to quote myself, but I'm actually uh, uh, quoting uh, Groucho Marx from an earlier book that I uh, wrote that came out in 2018. And in it, there's an anecdote about Groucho Marx uh, asking about RCA company in 1928, where his broker is, is uh, imploring him to buy RCA. And uh, Groucho Marx is saying, but if it's such a company, why wouldn't they pay a dividend now and again? So I'm going to fast forward that 100 years and say, if these these mag, uh, MAG7 fangs, if these companies are such good companies, why wouldn't they, uh, couldn't they pay a dividend every once in a while? So I, I don't have a mechanical way, Laura, to uh, claim exactly on what date they're going to <laughs> shift to a more normal business-like environment. But I just think the pressure... It won't be regulatory. It shouldn't be. I hope it's not regulatory. But I just think over time that uh, uh, corporate managers and investors will acknowledge the last couple of decades have been anomalous and that uh, the cash-based relationship is a more normal relationship in business and that they will adopt that cash-based relationship with company owners. Obviously, that would be a big kind of symbolic shift as well as kind of practical shift. But for investors that are sitting there thinking, well, I look at total returns on my portfolio, whether that's dividends reinvested or whether that's just share price returns, um, a lot of them might think 
does it really make a difference if I'm seeing the same returns, if you assume for argument's sake that you're seeing that same return, does it really matter if some of that is in capital returns or some of that is in dividend returns, other than I acknowledge, you know, the the practicalities of having to sell shares to realise those those some of those gains and to, to get cash in hand. Does it make a huge difference where those gains come from, I guess? Laura, that's a great question. It has not meant a huge difference the last couple uh, decades. Uh, you're, you're spot on. First of all, the academics, and it's literally right in the founding documents of modern academic finance, 1952, 1959 from Harry Markowitz, uh, and then reiterated in the initial statement of conditions in most of the academic articles in the 1950s and 60s. And they basically say an investor is indifferent to the a difference between a cash payment, a dividend, versus a gain in share price. So again, in an academic setting, you don't have to go into the marketplace to fund consumption. You don't have to sell shares to fund consumption. You are indifferent to whether the the uh, whether you're getting a check or whether it's just a higher share price. And that sets the stage for the academic kind of onslaught or attack on dividends that have occurred over the last 50, 60 years. And uh, in a rising market over the last uh, couple decades, uh, investors have done exactly that. They have, have been indifferent and they've had no reason not to be indifferent because a harvest, the phrase I use is a harvested capital gain to fund consumption has worked just as well as a, as a dividend payment. So again, instead of getting a, a check from uh, uh, from your employer, you just get a share ownership slip from your employer. You go every two weeks to the marketplace, you sell the shares, you, you fund consumption. It's worked out uh, just well. It is still anomalous and it has tended to depend upon rising markets to make that happen. But that has been precisely the case. And in the academic literature and in frankly in the regulatory literature meaning the regulatory framework that indifference between a harvested capital gain and a dividend payment is pretty much enshrined there's so there's nothing illegal with the current model of cashless investments you just sell it when you're ready to hopefully for a gain uh, and by and large, it has been for gains over the last couple decades. So retirees in the United States have gotten very used to doing precisely that. They are less sensitive to the cash flow, more sensitive to the asset price, and simply sell as needed. It's worked perfectly well. It's abnormal, uh, and I, I don't think it's the optimum approach to a retiree and for funding consumption, but it has worked for the last couple of decades. And if the stock market continues to, uh, these cashless businesses continue to rise, call it 10% a year, um, there will be very little perceived need for cash payments. But I, it doesn't make the situation normal from a business perspective. It just is been a very successful stock market situation and it, it's worked for decades. I'm just pointing out that it's there there it's an abnormal way to fund consumption. So that was Daniel Perez. You can check out his book, The Ownership Dividend, which is out on February the 14th. And those who subscribe to the podcast will probably have spotted that we published a bonus episode all about investment trusts. But if you haven't listened and you hadn't spotted it, then definitely check it out. Uh, on this first one, we've got a deep dive on Scottish mortgage. We've got a good introduction to investment trusts if you're new to them and other interviews as well. You can find it on all of the usual podcast platforms and it should be just right in line along with this one.
But that is all for the Money and Markets podcast this week. We'll be back with our fund manager interview next week, looking at Microsoft and chip makers. So very timely, as well as all the latest market and personal finance news. See you then. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares magazine. The podcast isn't telling you if a certain investment is suitable or not. Don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that how you're taxed will depend on your individual circumstances and rules can change. The way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.